0: evening, and whatever time zone you're in, good whatever. (laughs) Um, Tonight we're gonna review chapter two of the foundation of Buddhist practice. And we'll start with the motivation. And I just keep thinking about, um, I'm just really appreciative that uh, when I first started going to Buddhist centers both of them emphasize, I went to two places, and both emphasize learning the 10 non-virtues, the things that we need to abandon, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, divisive speech, harsh speech, and idle talk, coveting, malicious intent, and wrong view. We spend a lot of our time learning about what to adopt and what to abandon, and we have to look at those and learn about those. And for me, that was very beneficial. It helped me resolve a lot of confusion that I had growing up in our society. And so as we uh, review this chapter tonight, it's important to think, even though it can be kind of a wordy and heady chapter, it's actually boiling down to our own experience. And so knowing what to adopt and what to abandon, we have to figure this out, uh, what that really means in our lives. And we do this experientially, we do this by learning, understanding the meaning of things, meditating, and we bring this all into our our own experience so that's a great fortune to have those teachings. They'll help to, us to avoid being born, being born in um, lower rebirths, avoid harming others. We'll actually um, learn a lot about ourselves in the process, and maybe even get to a place where we take a genuine interest in others and learn how to Um, how to get rid of our self-centered thoughts so that we can actually benefit others. So let's see what we're doing tonight is in that greater context of um, cleaning up our ethical conduct, learning about concentration and wisdom so we can follow this path to full awakening to benefit all that we meet, and may we have many karmic connections. With all beings, all kinds of beings. So, I thought this was the hardest chapter in the book, and I got kind of lost when we first went through this, so I really... This was good for me. It's not so bad if you just keep reading it over and over. (laughs) So um, basically this chapter is about fulfilling our aims. What do we need to do to fulfill our aims? And is that possible? And so most religions are set up in a way where they want to um, bring, you know, accomplish certain goals. And in Buddhism, we talk about nirvana and full awakening. And we have to see if these things are really possible. So we have to actually be able to test the claims that are made. And we have to see if these are accurate and if they're non-deceptive. And we have to figure out what to practice and what to abandon in order to attain awakening. And when we have to figure out what the heck is the ultimate nature of reality. We have to be able to discern that. So Dharmakirti said that since correct or reliable cognition is a prerequisite for achieving all human purposes, I shall explain it. So that's what this chapter is about. It's mostly about reliable cognizers, correct thinking, correct thought, correct cognition. And we'll get into that. And we need to understand um, this in relationship to meditation um, because we have to know what kind of cognizer, what kind of mind we have going on in meditation. So for example, if we figure out something about emptiness or something about subtle impermanence or something like that, we might have a corrupt assumption. And that's just kind of like nice, but we really need to know if we have a non-conceptual realization. So we need to know these different kind of cognizers. Um, And as we, you will either recall this or maybe learn something new tonight, but mostly I think you'll be recalling things because as we go through this topic to see why those, you know, why it's important. But mainly one more general way to speak about this is we're always swimming upstream in Buddhism. We're always coming up against things that um, challenge our, the way we look at the world and even, our, even what we think about reality. So we're swimming upstream and we need to have the right tools to do that. And what did the Buddha say to do he said, to take an analytical approach, he said, "Do not accept my Dharma merely out of respect for me, but analyze and check it." So this is what led to in Buddhism, like fields of logic and epistemology, which is the like, how do you know things?" And so um, that's because these are the tools. And so um what we're actually trying to do when all is said and done is to ascertain with reliable cognizers, that's like have realizations that are um, with the correct kind of minds, cognizers and perceivers. We are going to... What are we going to know? We're going to know different kind of objects, like what we talked about last week, the four seals, or the two truths, things like that. Those are the things we need to be able to look at these objects. and do, as the Buddha said, the way a goldsmith analyzes gold by burning, cutting, and rubbing it. So what a goldsmith does back in the day, that way of uh, seeing if it was fake gold or real gold or the quality of the gold, is they'd look for external impurities in the gold by um, first by burning the gold. And these were kind of fairly evident flaws in the gold. And then to look for internal impurities they'd cut the gold and that helped them to see things that were slightly more obscure, different kind of faults in the gold. And then they which did something where they, they it says the verse says rubbing, but it's some kind of filing process where they actually could figure out if there were subtle and impu- very subtle impurities in the gold. So this is kind of similar to what we need to do in the sense of we need to look for these three kind of impurities regarding incorrect explanations. And what about evident phenomena, slightly obscure phenomena, and very obscure phenomena? That's the way we divide things up. That's really useful, and that's one of the main topics tonight. Um, So what, what we're taught, and what we need to really think through And really, if you think about your own experiences, it's it's not so hard to make sense of this. But we have to see what are, we have to see if there, are there any incorrect explanations regarding these three kinds of phenomena? And if there aren't any incorrect explanations, then we can accept those. So regarding the teachings, the teachings have described things that are evident, slightly obscure, and very obscure. And if they're, correct, we can accept those teachings. But if we find things that are incorrect, then we have, There's. we're not going into the whole chapter, uh, because there's more than you could cover in one night, but there's more in there about how to figure some of those things out uh, regarding that. Um, but first, let's talk about these three categories. And these are described in relationship to sentient beings. And so this is where you need to pull out your little handout and if you're online, there's a URL someplace, and pop it up and uh, look at side one at the top, and we're gonna do this together. Evident phenomena, slightly obscure phenomena, and very obscure phenomena. And for evident phenomena, there are four of these items that, that are related to it. So look at your little handout and see if you can figure out what those four are. Do we have a microphone? Do you want to just call it out? Yeah, you can call it out. Okay. Uh, yeah, I do need a pen because I gotta cross them off as we go. <laughs> um, so who wants to start? Okay. Ordinary beings easily perceive these objects. Yes, ordinary beings easily perceive these objects for evident phenomena. That's G. Yeah, we see things with our eyes easily. So these are evident. Okay, what else? There's three more. Yes, Venerable Pende. Thank you. A. Okay, A is includes external objects such as colors, sounds, odors, tastes, and tangible objects. Yes, those are evident phenomena. What else? Okay, Venerable Supple. C. Yes, these are known by direct, reliable cognizers that correspond to our five physical senses. That's how we see evident phenomena. Go ahead. F, right. F is includes internal objects, such as feelings of happiness, pain, hopes, and desires known by the mental consciousness. So these are all evident phenomena. Any Is that confusing or is that clear? Real good, we've, we've studied this a while. Okay, how about slightly obscure phenomena? This has three. H, examples for ordinary beings are subtle impermanence and emptiness. Why? <laughs> this is the bonus point. Because <laughs> you can understand them through reasoning. Because you understand them through reasoning, yes. And that's, they are slightly obscure, you don't see them, you have to use reasoning. You don't hear them. Whatever. Okay. What else? There's two more. E. E. Cannot initially be directly perceived. Yeah, right. Emptiness. What? You don't see emptiness? This is empty. I can see that's empty. (laughs) Wrong kind of emptiness. Okay. All right. Don't play that word game on me. One more. Yes. D. Okay. Ordinary beings must initially know them by... Factual inferential cognizers. Inferential cog- reliable cognizers based on valid factual reasons. Right, which a lot of times are syllogisms. Syllogisms for those. Okay, now we have very obscure phenomena. One, only one left, Venerable Pende. B. B, known by ordinary sentient beings by relying on inferential, reliable cognizers by authoritative testimony. The attestation, who can say that word, of someone who is authoritative in that field. Yeah, so we're gonna talk about these more, but yes, very good, but let's go back to, um, let's go to to flip your page, page two, because I, I had to fit things on the pages, and let's just talk a little bit about these three types of phenomena known by a specific kind of reliable cognizer, just so we get this very clear, because this comes up again and again in this chapter. What kind of reliable cognizer knows evident phenomena? B, direct reliable cognizer. What kind of cognizer knows slightly obscure phenomena? C. the factual inferential cognizer. What kind of cognizer knows very obscure phenomena? A the inferential reliable cognizer by authoritative testimony. Is everybody clear? Okay, we'll talk about those a little bit more. But you did very good. <laughs> All right, so these are three kind of three categories of phenomena, and they are described in relationship to ordinary sentient beings. They're not described in a relationship to arias. Why would that be? What do you think? Why would they not be described in terms of arias? Because we're saying that uh, evident, that slightly obscure phenomena are known, for example, by factual inferential cognizers. Why wouldn't that work for an aria? Yes, because an aria is having direct perception, they're realizing it directly. They're actually using a, an evident, uh, that is an evident phenomena to an aria. It's not a slightly obscure phenomena when they're in direct meditative, when they're having a non-conceptual meditative equipoise on emptiness. That is a direct, reliable cognizer, and that is an evident phenomena to them. So these three categories are described in relationship to ordinary beings. So for ordinary beings, the real real emptiness is a slightly obscure phenomena. Whereas for an aria, it's a a evident phenomena. In meditative meditative equipoise, yes. Right. So, and for Buddhas, there are no obscure objects, they are omniscient. So that's how they vary a little bit uh, by the type of person. So let's do a little, there's a reflection on page 20 that we're gonna do an example with. I'm gonna kind of talk through it, but you can think about this in terms of other things. There are a lot of really good exercises in this chapter, and I would we're gonna review the basic information. This is a review. We're gonna review the basic information. But then once we've reviewed this, maybe we'll be clearer on it. I certainly was, then I would say go back and do all the exercises because they're really good questions. So exercise on 20 was make examples of evident phenomena, slightly obscure and very obscure phenomena that you already know. How did you come to understand them? What type of reliable cognizer was involved? And so as we just went through those, yes, direct reliable cognizers, our five senses and our mental consciousness are going to see things that are evident and the factual inferential cognizers are gonna be va- based on valid factual reasons. And then there's inferential, reliable cognizers by authoritative testimony, where we rely on somebody who's an authority in the field. But so let's apply this to a campfire. That's what she does in this chapter. And this, this is an example where ordinary beings, the same phenomena, the same object, could be all three categories for different ordinary beings for depending on their situation. For example, you're sitting at a campfire, you're feeling the warmth, you're seeing the fire. For you, that is a, an evident phenomena. But then your friends are on the other side of a clump of trees and all they see is smoke. And where there's smoke, there's fire. And they infer that there's behind those trees, there's smoke, so there must be a fire. They don't see it, it's not evident, they infer that. And then you get on your cell phone and you call your friend in New York City, <laughs> and you say, here I am at a campfire. And for them, that is an obscure, a very obscure phenomenon. They don't see it, they can't hear it, they can't feel it, they can't do anything with reasoning, the uh, inference, they couldn't, have, it just won't, it's not gonna get there for them. They have to rely on you, the authoritative person who knows that you're sitting at a campfire to know that. So they, for them to know the existence of that campfire, no amount of reasoning would prove that to them. So that's a, that's where the you're just varying the situation, and ordinary beings could have one of these three. So some other examples are like I actually I was born at 11:20 on December 5th. I kind of don't remember that to tell you the truth, <laughs> but my mom told me that, and for her it was very evident. But for me, it's Extremely hidden phenomena, obscure, very obscure phenomena. I don't remember that at all, but I remember what she told me. So for that is another example where it depends according to the situation. I mean, I was even there. <laughs> but and then like another thing, like uh, another example in the book is like. All the various stars and planets in our universe, the details of those for us are very obscure. But if you were a little creature on those planets, it'd be evident. So, according to your situation, these things, you know, they change. But they're also, uh, they also, for one, even for one individual, they could, you could go through and have this, uh, all three of those regarding an object. For example, if we're an ordinary being and we haven't entered any of the meditative paths, for us, emptiness or subtle impermanence is a slightly obscure phenomena. But when we become an Arya, as we said, that could be an evident phenomena because we'd have a yogic direct perceiver of it. So, yeah. And then another thing that's kind of interesting is to think about when I look at you, I'm looking at Venerable Sultan right now. I see your body. For me, your body is an evident phenomena. But the fact that you have a heart is not an evident phenomena. That's something I infer because all human beings have hearts. Therefore, you have a heart. <laughs> you know, I can infer that. And then the fact, the causes that you have this body, the karmic causes that for is very obscure for me, very obscure phenomena, because that's only known by a Buddha. I have no idea how you got into this rebirth, the details of karma, it's like, that's beyond the beyond for me. So let's do uh, one example that I really enjoyed when we went through this chapter, partly because I never think we came up with any answer, but this is on page 20 and 21, this is question number three and we're gonna just see what people think about this, and even if people online have ideas. If you've never been to Antarctica, which of the three categories of phenomena is Antarctica in relation to you? I quite enjoyed this, do you remember? Okay, so is it very obscure because you have to depend on another person's testimony to know what it looks like? Or is it slightly obscure because you could see like a photograph or a 3D model so you can infer what it looks like? Or is it evident because you saw it live streamed on the internet? <laughs> okay, does anyone have any thoughts about this? Think about it. Which one, which, which, which is it for you? What do you think? Has anyone here been to Antarctica? No, okay. Close. Close is no cigar. <laughs> Close, but no cigars. So what do you think? What do you think, Venables Ultram? The question is, is Antarctica, to you who has never been there, is it an evident phenomena? Is it a slightly obscure phenomena? Because somebody showed you like a map or a model, or is it very obscure? Because you have to depend on another person's testimony even though it's there. Very obscure, why? You've never been there, so you don't know. So it's not evident. But why isn't why can't you infer it's there? Why not? Why not? How about if I showed you a video? Actually I could probably infer it
1: because I've met people who have them.
0: You think you could infer it because you've met people who have been there. What would be your what would take a microphone and tell me what your Thought would be, why aren't they? Aren't they a reliable authority? If to somebody that they're a reliable authority, that would be very obscure. I think. Less like the campfire thing. It's like your friend calling you from New York and telling you, "Hey, I'm at a campfire," or your mom telling you when you're born. Hmm, I think that's very obscure. What about the video? (laughs) What do you think? Fake news. Yeah, that's where we ended up last time. What if somebody you know, does something to the video? Or they turn their iPhone on and they start showing pictures of
1: icebergs and uh, penguins and stuff. Right. But the, the definition of an evident phenomenon includes external objects. So to be an external object, doesn't that have to be in relationship to the perceiver? I mean, to have it as a virtual, that's pushing the external object Experience like you have to be in the presence of that external object to call it an evident phenomena.
0: Yeah, like the campfire example. Right,
1: where if you've got just a you've got a video of it, you're not exactly perceiving it directly. It's through a. It's pretty good in court. It,
0: that's true. <laughs> that's the that's the true. police cams. But, are.
1: but if you want to take the description pretty literally, here it does says say external objects for evident phenomena. Yeah.
0: Anyway, so anyway, anybody got any other thoughts? Yes. I suppose Shravasti Abbey is
1: very obscure for all the people online who haven't been here, right? I mean, but how they, do they know we actually have a monastery here? You know, you could have a fake cardboard thing <laughs> behind you, maybe. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. It was created in created in Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, it's a that's an interesting one, I think. I don't have an answer to that one, but I do think it's interesting that you can use camp video things in court and they'll, you know, it's authoritative, but they probably don't answer this question either. Police. police, police camcorders, yeah. So, I mean, they are reliable, we use them. So, I don't know, it's hard. Some people really thought when we talked about this last time that a video was, was a evident phenomena. But then that got cloudy. But for me, it's very cloudy because even if I was in Antarctica uh, and even if I had really no impairment, I don't know, to me, like when you look at things a lot of times, how reliable is that sometimes? You know what I mean? Sometimes you you see things, I don't know, I guess if, if you weren't impaired in any way, you should be able to, Rely on that, but every once in a while that falls seems to get me into trouble. Yes. Question from online. It says, What about hearing aids? Yeah, right. This is where we went last time. Telescopes, microscopes, hearing aids. <laughs> exactly. The things that are amplified. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. Well, you are hearing. So you're directly, you know, I think that would be evident, but you're just, you're having to augment it. So then a microscope? Well, you're there, at least. (laughs) I don't know, it's tough. They have a microscope now where they went under this, in the sea, and it can see as small as a micron, which is a hundredth of a width of a hair, and they watched coral being formed. Now, what do you think? (laughs) evident I don't know it gets really fuzzy after a while because you can't see that with your naked eye but and they can see actually down to an angstrom now with certain kinds of microscopes that's amazing they can watch that blows my mind that's really small that's like chemical reactions watching chemical reactions happen or something okay so that's where we got with that one let's move on <laughs> yes okay you have a microphone? I got a microphone? Use it We say so that people can I would hear you. say very obscure
1: because we needed a world map to know about Antarctica's existence, And the second one was, without the testimony of another, I could never have reasoned that Antarctica exists, and without testimony, I would not be able to reason out that a video is of Antarctica.
0: yeah, that's pretty good. Okay, you win. <laughs> I like that one. I think that's the most reasoned answer yet. Yeah, that that makes sense. I think that's good. We'll call it good. Okay, we're moving on to the seven types of awarenesses. And now you've got your little sheet, I think you're on page two. Um, So in the monastic universities in uh, old Tibet, and now in India, wherever, they taught the topic of reliable cognizers by introducing these seven types of awareness. And these are taught from the satantrika point of view. And not all of the seven are reliable cognizers, but this is how they introduce the topic. Some of them are and some aren't. So let's review what these seven types of awarenesses are. And this is, uh, we'll start with direct perceivers. Well, I'll list them first. There's direct perceivers, inferential cognizers, subsequent cognizer, correct assumption, inattentive, inattentive, inattentive awareness, diluted doubt and wrong awareness. And as you might remember, usually you start at a wrong awareness and you work your way all the way up <laughs> through a lot of those, maybe not all of them, but you know, not necessarily an inattentive, inattentive awareness, but basically you kind of work up to uh, these ones that are more reliable. So let's see what they are. So let's start with a direct perceiver. There's two things on this chart that match. F, okay, an awareness that knows its object directly without a conceptual appearance of its observed object. Yeah, right, a direct perceiver does not have a conceptual appearance or a generic image. It sees its object directly. Uh, What else? There's one more. C, yes, a visual consciousness of dew drops on green grass. Okay, how about an inferential cognizer? There's two. J, right. An awareness that correctly understands its observed object through a conceptual appearance, a mental image of the object, and by means of an inference. And there's an example. Right. K. The conceptual consciousness realizing subtle impermanence generated as the culmination of a process of reasoning, which was produced in dependence on a correct sign acting as its basis, sign or reason. Okay, that's right. Now we're going to subsequent cognizer, and this one has three. D, right, the second moment onward of a sense, this is an example of a subsequent cognizer, the second moment onward of a sense, direct, reliable cognizer of blue. So you have a direct, Since you're seeing blue with your eye consciousness, you have a sense-reliable cognizer of blue. The next moment, you have a subsequent cognizer of that. There's two more, an example and P, right. An awareness that realizes an existent object that has already been realized. It's the second moment onward following a conceptual or non-conceptual reliable cognizer. And there's another example. That's
1: not, that's
0: not a subsequent P. That's a subsequent cognizer. <laughs> I'm on subsequent cognizer. And, and O, someone said O, yeah, there were three. So another example of a subsequent cognizer was the second moment onward of an inferential co- reliable cognizer realizing the emptiness of the person. So there you can see that there are both conceptual and non conceptual. Subsequent cognizers, whereas like the direct perceiver, completely non-conceptual. The inference, inferential cognizer, conceptual. The subsequent cognizer, you can have either. Okay, now a correct assumption. There are two here. One is an example and one is more like a description. E. E, right. A conceptual awareness that correctly apprehends its object as a result of having read or heard an explanation of it, but does not fully or firmly grasp the meaning or conclusively ascertain its object. So you've read something, you get it at that moment, you know, you're understanding it correctly. But it's it's not it's not like you've uh thought about it, it's not like you really have delved into it. You could probably forget it in the next moment, actually, you know, for briefly, you know, but you haven't fully grasped the meaning of it. You haven't ascertained it. So it's not stable. So what's an example here? Cue. Q. Q, right. After learning a new topic, we have a correct general idea about it, but because we don't ascertain the meaning, our, our understanding is not firm, and we could change our mind later. So, you know, you could say the words and have a general idea, but you really haven't, you haven't really grokked it. And you haven't made it firm. And you could easily get knocked off that. And this is what Venerable uh, always has said that Geshe Sonam Rinchen always said to them when they would laugh at some of the uh, non-Buddhist schools. And actually, a lot of the stuff we're learning comes from these non-Buddhist schools. Um, about reliable cognizers, which we'll see later on. Um, But if you had somebody who was really, uh, could explain things in a real uh, clear way, you might adopt some of those ideas that could be wrong. You know, he always really, she's told us that story many times. So that's where you can get knocked off these things because you really haven't delved into them. Okay, the next one is an inattentive awareness. This has two. H, H, right. A direct perceiver to which its apprehended object clearly appears but is not ascertained. Okay, there's an example. What's that? N. N, right. While engrossed in watching a movie, our auditory consciousness hears the voices of people near us. But later, we cannot say with certainty that people were speaking or what they were discussing. Because our eye consciousness, and we're just, we're focused on one thing, and we kind of like, yeah, yeah, but we're not really attending, it's inattentive. You might be able to say, I heard something. (laughs) Okay, now we're moving on to diluted doubt, and there are two. A, right, an awareness that vacillates between two or more options and is inclined toward the wrong conclusion. Exactly, not, not something that's gonna help you in the long run. And an example, L, right, a mind that wonders whether or not future lives exist and thinks that probably they do not. That's a mind inclined towards the wrong conclusion. But you're not, you know, you're just not, you can't, you haven't decided. Whereas now we go to a wrong awareness. This has four items, three examples and one description. Okay, we'll start with G. Either conceptual or non-conceptual consciousness that incorrectly apprehends its its observed object. Okay, let me say that again either a conceptual or non-conceptual consciousness that incorrectly apprehends its observed object. So, what's are some examples? Okay, I heard B. B, example, holding the view that impermanent things are permanent. Yeah, that's, you may have uh, something appearing to your mind, but actually, what your mind is getting at is wrong, essentially. What's another one? M. A hallucination, hearing voices where there are none. That's clear. So you you actually, something is happening in the mind, something is appearing to the mind, but its, it's actual observed object is a wrong awareness, because there aren't, you're hearing something, but there there actually aren't any voices there. Have you ever had that experience? (laughs) Okay, we'll move on to the next one. (laughs) Okay, there's one more. (laughs) Aye, okay. Holding the view that what is foul is actually delightful. I've had that experience a lot, because I used to go to anatomy labs when I was in graduate school, and I'd ride my bike there at 7.30 in the morning, and I was just, I was barely awake, even though it was kind of a long ride. And I'd, you know, I'd get in there, and it's like 7.30, and there's these cadavers, and a part would fall on the floor, and I was just so grossed out. But then I would walk out that door and be attracted to somebody. Like, <laughs> all those anatomy labs never taught me anything about foulness of the body, really and i was around these cadavers for a lot of hours and i never got it it was like it just wrong 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 awareness okay so now okay now we're going on to a little bit about so we've talked a little bit about some of these characteristics of reliable and unre- unreliable awarenesses um so we have to try to understand that not all of our cognitions are reliable. As we can see from the examples that we went through, we have these experiences that aren't reliable. So we have to try to figure out these in our own experience. We have to identify these things um, so that we can figure out, should I trust what I'm seeing? Should I trust what I'm thinking? Even Even with seeing, you know, like that experience where you think you're moving, but you aren't? you know, when something moves past you. I mean, that's not reliable. And you're seeing it and thinking. I mean, of course, we all know that one. So, yeah, so there actually are two... So we have to we have to figure this out. And there's two main explanations about this topic of reliable cognizers or pramana. Pramana is what the Sanskrit word for reliable cognizer. So one system is from Dharmakirti and one is from Chandakirti. Dharmakirti wrote from the Satantrika and Chittamatra perspective, and Chandrakirti taught from the Prasangika Manyamaka perspective. And they define the word Pramana differently. So for Dharmakirti, a Pramana or a reliable cognizer is a prime cognizer, it's new and non-deceptive knower. So new, the, the word pra of Pramana is taken as new, so they translate this as prime cognizer often. Um, new indicates that it's the first moment of a non-deceptive cognizer. So that's for, for Dharmakirti, the first moment is the prime cognizer, and the subsequent moments in the same continuity, knowing the same object, these are subsequent cognizer. And for Dharmakirti, these are not prime, they're not reliable. And so Dharmakirti, a proponent who who spoke uh, what we now call satantrika, for this, for satantrika, these prime cognizers are not considered reliable cognizers. Why? Because reliable cognizers or prime cognizers, they know an object under their own power. Whereas a subsequent cognizer doesn't know the object under its own power. It knows it by the force of the prime cognizer, the previous moment. So that's, that's, that's their take on this. And I remember when Guy was here, he talked about this a lot from the viewpoint of a meditator. Um, I think that the idea that I recall him saying was like, kind of like the freshness of the first moment has quite a lot of impact. And you could kind of understand that when you think about, yeah, when you think about it. But Chandrakirti saw this differently. For him, Pramana is a knower that is non-deceptive with regard to its principle or apprehended object. So they both have non-deceptive, but uh, Chandrakirti doesn't have the requirement of new. That's because the pra of pramana, he he doesn't translate that as new. He uses valid or right or main. And so for them, the subsequent cognizer is a pramana. Because it's actually the cognition is valid with respect to its main object. The moment before you had a reliable cognition, you still have that same object as the main object. And so for them, they are reliable cognizers because they, they the same apprehended object is they have the same apprehended object as the moment right before. So that's that's how he sees this. Does that make sense? It's, it's not that hard in a way. We have to go back to the main thing. The main thing is like for Satantrika, the prime cognizer, it knows it under its own power. But that doesn't, for uh, Chandakirti, that wasn't a big deal for him, because hey, it's the same object, you're apprehending the same things. For him, that's good enough for me. It's reliable. Okay, so for both of them, They both have non-deceptive. And what does that mean? It means incontrovertible. This knower is trustworthy and knows its object correctly. So then from that perspective, if you look at like Dharmakirti, who presented these seven types of awarenesses that we went through, he would say that two of those seven are reliable. He would say the direct reliable cognizer and the inferential reliable cognizer. So the first two, direct and inferential. For him, those are the ones that are um, pramana. And then one thing he does, which I think is, I wanted to kind of focus on tonight, were inferential reliable cognizers, because I found this topic interesting, especially at the very end of the chapter, but you have to review a lot to get there, and we might not get there. See what time we started, we started at 7.15, so we go to 8.15 or 8.30, somewhere in there. Okay, we might get there, we might not. We'll see. Anyway, so for Dharmakirti, when he talked about inferential reliable cognizers, he broke it into three types. Uh, factual inferential cognizer, which we sometimes have called inference by the power of the fact, because um, there's different translations. And then he, the second one for him was inferential cognizers based on renown. And I like to say renown in the world because it helps me remember what that is a little better. And the third one was inferential cognizers based on belief. And so that's the one. So let me, I'm gonna give the definitions of these. And um, I think what I wanted, what I came out from this with was a much clearer understanding of what Dharmakirti and Satantraka think and what Chandakirti thinks, that I got really confused on when we went through this, when she first taught it. Um, But a few things helped me out here. So it was kind of, Seeing what do they hold in common, and what didn't they, and why. That was basically what it came down to. So the factual inferential cognizer, or inference by the power of the fact, the definition of that is an inferential consciousness by the power of the fact is a determinative knower which depends on its basis, a correct sign by the power of the fact, and is incontrovertible with respect to its object of comprehension. What a slightly hidden phenomena. An illustration is the inferential cons- consciousness realizing that sound is impermanent. So it's a determinative knower, and it depends on this correct sign. And it's a and it, what are you? What is it based on? It's it's what you're comprehending. It's the object of comprehension, which is a slightly hidden phenomena, and it's incontrovertible, incontrovertible with respect to that. Whereas the next one, the inferential cognizer based on renown, and this is not one that Chantakirti listed, that's actually the object of comprehension. There is more like a suitable, a termino- terminological suitability, like a suitable term. It's like we call the moon uh, rabbit possessor, and everyone in that who did that in ancient India knew that word, and rabbit possessor was moon. So. For, for dharmakirti, that was in, uh, that type of terminological suitability is what this is about. Renown means renowned in the world, essentially. So let me read the definition to make that more clear. A determinative knower, right, which, depending on its basis, a correct sign of renown. That's the bottom line here, a correct sign of renown is incontrovertible with respect to its object of comprehension, which is what a terminological suitability as an, exil, an illustration would be the inferential consciousness that realizes it's suitable to express rabbit possessor by the term moon. So it's kind of just saying these words we use that we all agree upon, you know, that is that's that is the, um, object of comprehension here. So, and that's one that chandra Kirshi doesn't list. Okay, and his third one is the inferential cognizer based on belief, which is what we described earlier as uh, authoritative testimony, inference based on authoritative testimony. And this was for very hidden phenomena. And this, an illustration of that would be like the scripture from Nagarjuna where he says, from giving resources, from ethics, a happy migration, is incontrovertible with respect to the meaning indicated by it. So for some person, that's gonna be, they'll have an inference about this. They will get to a place where they rely on this through the scripture, something that is very obscure phenomena, and they'll come to an inference where they know that. And Venable Children is always a little hesitant about this one, but I actually think it makes sense to me um, that that you could get to a place where you would know something, but I can see her hesitancy. I think I think her ideas are make sense. Yeah, use a mic.
1: I'm really puzzled on this one too. But it, it, it just is just my thinking is that um, Dharmakirti spends the entire second chapter. With a zillion proofs about why the Buddha is a reliable right. being, right. on on the realizing that on that basis, then it seems to me that the inferential cognizer based on belief, if you have that realization, have followed all the logic to to yes. take the Buddha as that reliable being, then right. the authority is unquestionable.
0: Right, I agree, and that's why um, in this chapter, which we aren't going into tonight, they talk about the three ways of looking at scripture for evident, slightly obscure, and very obscure phenomena, because they have criteria that you need to satisfy to make that happen. And so, as Venables has said many times, the Buddha knew what he was talking about. <laughs> and because you can rely on the things that you can grok, you can kind of, you know, like, explore the possibility at the minimum that maybe some of this other stuff holds true too, even though you don't know it yet. And that's where we need to have some, I think, faith based on reasoning to move forward so that we can generate wisdom. If you don't have any faith, as Nagarjuna says, you just can't get anywhere. Faith faith is first, but wisdom is foremost or something like that is the meaning of what he says. Yeah, so anyway, those are interesting, I think, to think about because this is the level that we're working at for a lot of things. So, understanding inference is important. So, okay, of those five, of those seven consciousness, those first two were reliable, but for uh, Dharmakirti, the wrong consciousness, the doubt, the subsequent cognition, the correctly assuming consciousness, and the inattentive consciousness, none of those were considered pramana or reliable cannot be trusted. And that's really something to think about, and Venerable asks a lot of questions here that I think is worth doing, like, why not? You know, and she if you read the chapter, she gives a lot of examples, so I, I, once you, I would spend more time with that. But I'm going to move on to Chandakirti's Kirti's Four Types of Reliable Cognizers, because this is where I got kind of confused last time, and it makes more sense to me, and I, I think the footnote helped me the most. Um, And the footnote around this chapter had to do with the fact that these four that he mentions were actually things that were held by non-Buddhist schools. So this predated him, essentially, or was these concurrent, I don't know. But in ancient India, both Buddhist and non-Buddhist schools accepted these. So for instance, the Vaisheshika Vaisheshika school, which is a non-Buddhist school, they already accepted direct perceivers and inferential cognizers as reliable. And then the samkhyas added to that reliable cognizers depending on scripture. And then the Nyaya school added reliable cognizer using an example or an analogy. So let's list first, now you need to look at your chart. Uh, I think this is on the bottom of page one on the handout. This is a chart from Venerable's book from this chapter of the reliable cognizers and unreliable cognizers, according to Chandakirti, on page 26. And on the left side, it has the reliable cognizers. Basically, he has four, right? And they, they boil down to two direct, reliable cognizers and inferential, but he splits out the inferential. So he comes up with a list of four, which is what they had in these non Buddhist schools and early Buddhist schools as well, apparently. And then one thing that he does is under the direct reliable cognizers, which you don't have on your chart, but I have on mine, because I'm up here, and I can't I have to have the footnotes, <laughs> is that a direct reliable cognizer for Chandakirti also includes the subsequent cognizers. And that we'll talk about. And so and the unreliable ones, he's the same as uh dharmakirti, except for one, the subsequent cognizers is where they differ in one way. So for the unreliable ones, just like dharmakirti, wrong awarenesses and diluted doubt and inattentive awarenesses and correct assumptions are all unreliable for both of them. But when you go to the reliable ones, dharmakirti did not have a reliable, number three, reliable cognizers based on an example. So this is, uh, and remember he had one based on renown and the other two were the same. So that's where they had some differences. And so we'll go through these a little bit. That chart will be helpful still. So we're on the direct reliable cognizers on that chart by Chandakirti here. this is where the words get funny. Okay, so we've talked about this a little bit already. These are cognizers that know their objects that are evident phenomena, as we've said. They know them directly. They know them non-deceptively. And for Chandakirti, they're not depending on a reason or a logical mark. So, in, so this, is where they, this is where a big difference is. For Satantrika, the direct, indirect perceiver means without a conceptual appearance. But that's not what it means for the prasangika. The direct and direct perceiver means not relying on a reason for them. So this is the, one of the main differences. So that's the, if you can kind of remember that, direct perceiver for satantrika means no conceptual appearance. Direct perceiver for prasangika means not relying on a reason. So for an example of, the, of a direct reliable cognizer, as we said, if we have an unimpaired I faculty, we can see blue. We will have a non-conceptual, direct, reliable cognizer. And another example would be, this is now just for Prasangika. the subsequent cognizer is also a direct, reliable cognizer. So for instance, a consciousness correctly remembering a conversation we had yesterday. Okay, so they call that direct. It's a direct, reliable cognizer, even though it's a conceptual memory of the conversation. So remember, subsequent cognizers can be conceptual and non-conceptual. But for prasangika they are direct. Why? Because it's not relying on a reason. So it's a direct, reliable cognizer. I'm taking these words right out of her book. I cut and paste everything. <laughs> I'm not making any of this up. I'm just explaining it, and I have different colors for things so I can keep track of things. So yeah, and that when you go back to where they differ, it, it all makes sense. You can call it direct. Why? Because it's not relying on a, on a it's not relying on a reason. It doesn't matter that it has a conceptual appearance. It can still be called direct because it's not relying on a reason. Why? Because it's a subsequent cognizer. The cognizer before <laughs> it was the one that was. Uh, was uh, conceptual, yeah, it might have been conceptual, Well, it might not have been. If you had a conversation, you were hearing it. It could have been direct. But then you're remembering it, and that's conceptual. But because it's a subsequent cognizer, and it follows that, it's by the power of the previous one. You know, it doesn't have to be under its own power. Why? Because you're not a satantrika now. You're (laughs) wearing your Prasangraka hat. You're not relying on a reason, so you're good you can call it direct. It uh, it, it doesn't have to, because we're not talking about inferences. We're talking about direct, reliable cognizers. Yeah. I don't know if I can answer, but you can ask.
1: So if you're remembering the conversation you had yesterday, and you call that memory of a conversation that you did have a direct, reliable cognizer of in that moment is still a direct, reliable cognizer because you are recalling it now. But the person that you had the conversation with has a completely different memory of that conversation, also presumably having a direct, reliable cognizer. How do we deal with Well, you have
0: to have unimpaired. There's got to be something, you know, these things have to be unimpaired. I mean correctly remembering a conversation. Yeah, this is where I think it gets fuzzy. This right. is when I mean, we the start this conversation. Part is the
1: problem. I mean,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it has to be correct. Correctly remembering a conversation. Yeah.
1: Who validates or who Well, this es- is where this is where it gets tough. In controversy. This is where people
0: disagree about everything. <laughs> And even with the video cameras, because you have a different angle. This is where it gets a little fuzzy. This is, this is why somebody has to like go to court and <laughs> show it from different angles. Go ahead, give her a mic. Not everyone agrees with this. There's a,
1: a great African proverb that says, there's three sides to every story. There's your side, my side, and then there's
0: the truth. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Okay, let's go on. Another example of this direct reliable cognizer, according to Chanda Kirti, is, and mo- many scholars would agree, not all, that the second moment onward of an inferential cognizer realizing impermanence, an inferential cognizer. So now that's got a conceptual appearance to it because it's inferential, right? And it's realizing impermanence. and that, But the subsequent moment, the second moment of that is a direct reliable cognizer because the first moment of the inferential, the f- unlike the first moment, it's not relying on a reason. That's the, comes down to the same thing. So it is a direct, reliable cognizer, but it doesn't directly apprehend. That's where the words get screwed up, and I don't want to spend too much time on that. To directly apprehend something, it has to be non-conceptual. So you have to be careful. It's, it's a conceptual consciousness, so it doesn't directly apprehend. But it is a direct, reliable cognizer. And that's how the language goes, my friends. <laughs> That's a cut and paste, <laughs> and that's where we always get mixed up on this. But we have to, we have to. We've heard this at least five times since I've lived here, so we have to start learning it. Maybe by the sixth or seventh, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so that was the general topic of direct, reliable cognizers. Okay, um, so then there's all these other ones under here, where they he breaks it down: sense ones, mental ones, and yogic direct receivers. And some examples, sense ones we know, but some examples of mental direct reliable cognizers are like clairvoyance, or even the consciousness that knows, or knows our feelings of happiness and pain. And then the um, direct one, this is where this is what we want to go to. This is where we have to have the unity of serenity and insight, a union of serenity and insight, which is a, a and anyway, we place that on something that is meaningful, like the Four Noble Truths, or um, the 16 attributes of the Four Noble Truths, emptiness, and we realize it directly. This is how we overcome our defilements. But I'm not spending much time on that. I'm more interested in the the inferences. So So the second one we've talked about already that Chandakirti had, now on the chart, back to the chart, number two, inferential reliable cognizers. We've talked about those pretty much. Um, An example would be a syllogism. Consider the person. She does not exist as a permanent, partless, under its own power, soul or self, because she depends on her body and mind. So if you know that the person depends on her body and mind, I think we know that, then you can, that's the reason, that depends on her body and mind, and the person is the subject, then you can come to the place where you understand this thesis at some point, Consider a person, she does not exist as a permanent, partless, under its own power, soul or self, because. So you can get to the place where you actually know that incontrovertibly with inferential reliable cognizer, which is slightly obscure. So you need to have reasoning. And then the third one, which is to me super interesting. it's the reliable, this was one that Dharmakirti didn't have, but this is what I feel like most of my education was in, in science related stuff, which I had a lot of physical therapy, any of that stuff was reliable cognizers based on an example. They realize their objects, which are slightly obscure phenomena by understanding something that's similar. So you're, it's like you have a model I've read so many books with diagrams and pictures and this, how the atoms are working, How the, I was a physiology major, how everything is working, what the anatomy is even, you know, pictures, pictures, diagrams, diagrams. And so you have these diagrams that are giving you some information that's similar to what, it, what really is there. Now, if you're a surgeon, it's pretty direct, but if you're not a surgeon and you're dealing with people's anatomy, I'm not cutting them open, but I'm, I know these things from books and diagrams and pictures and blah, blah, blah. So though all those are um, reliable based on an example. And this was really strong for me once when I realized that um, I completely believed, I mean, like 12, 13 years ago, I remember thinking this, I completely believe in the muscle contraction theory, completely believe in that theory. But I've never seen any of it happen, zero. I learned this all from books and diagrams, and I had to learn that a lot of times. It's a big test question. They test you on all the molecules and all of this and that. And then you work in a job where you're working with people's muscles and they're spastic and they're flaccid and they're paralyzed and they're weak and strong and this and that, and spasms and whatever it is, and they take muscle relaxers and they feel this way and they don't take muscle relaxers and they feel that way. And I mean, there's just all these tangible stuff. And then you have this theory and I realize I completely believe that, and that is something that I never saw, and I completely believe it, and it's based on this. Since you know, there's similar characteristics of the model or the diagram or whatever. And for actually in India, uh, I think the Buddha told this king to give this other king a gift. he, he had to give him something really valuable, and he didn't have anything. Right, I don't know, somehow he asked the Buddha, and that's how this happened, where uh, a king was given a painting of the Wheel of Life, you know, with the 12 links and all that, and it shows the different classes of beings and everything. And from that, it shows how you take rebirth, right? And from that picture alone, this king understood dependent arising. And then from that, he actually had an understanding of the lack of inherent existence, according to our book. As the venerable said, I wasn't there. I'm taking this one on testimony. <laughs> but we're, you know, we're always told about the thing with the reflection in the mirror. This is another one by example where, you know, um, okay, here's like this. A face in a mirror is evident, right? And em- but emptiness is slightly obscure. But we use this example, something evident, to get to something slightly obscure. So when in- an intelligent disciple whose mind stream is fully ripened, fully ripened. A lot of these inferences, they don't come out of nowhere. They're based on a person having a lot of background. We have the Buddhist worldview. We study the Lam Rim. We place all these things in this context, and then we're given these things to think about. And so for that one, just as a face in a mirror lacks true existence, so does the person. And this is a power of the example. And this is where the context really matters because she uses an example about Uh, one about death, and I'm thinking, yeah, think, you know, something like uh, the person dies because they are born. That was the syllogism in this chapter, and I'm like, and that's going to lead the person to think about rebirth and getting out of cyclic existence. I'm like, well, not most of the people I know. (laughs) You know, it's like the person dies because they are born. Well, I know a person is born, so the reason I've got and I probably am gonna figure out that I'm gonna die, but it's not necessarily gonna make me think about getting out of cyclic existence. So this is where, you know, to be a, a qualified disciple, you know, to be the a suitable subject for what we're trying to learn from these things, these things are in a context, right? And that's one of the points in this chapter. Okay, so we're running out of time, so I wanna to go to the very end to, um, oh, the last one is the reliable cognizers based on authoritative testimony, which we've kind of covered already. There wasn't anything really new in there. Um, And then we all know enough about syllogisms to understand the language of syllogism. So I wanna go to the very end of, near the end of the book, I don't remember what page this is, but it's a part called Inferential Reliable Cognizers in Meditation. And I found this really interesting because she goes, talks about the four establishments of mindfulness, and you have to have all this terminology and understanding for this to kind of make any sense, really. But okay, the topic here is inferential reliable cognizers and meditation. So we, we have so many people that, you know, where, what, what they're writing here, what His Holiness is writing here, what I'm writing here is like the pushback we're pushing back against people who think that analytical meditation is not experiential. That's what's happening here. And so, okay, so she starts by explaining, or His Holiness, that we have these two basic kinds of meditation, we have um, stabilizing meditation and analytical meditation, or serenity and insight. And a lot of people don't get that inference is not just mere intellectual, ...ness, you know, like discursive thought or something. It's it is related. What it leads you to is an experience-based insight. That's the point. And so, and actually, these kind of factual inferences can have a very profound effect on our mind. As Jeffrey has said many times, we can tot- totally change our outlook on things. Think about these things that that all these things that we've learned already that non-dharma-related, where we're doing this by inference, and we. Have totally affected our lives by these kind of things, you know, in your careers and your, you know, your daily life, whatever. So th- that's important to understand. And and then what I really liked is that she talked about this that we don't even have to consciously state a syllogism. That's where she talks about the four establishments of mindfulness. So we are using a factual inference and t- in developing insight through analytical meditation, and we're not necessarily stating a syllogism to ourselves. For instance, when we establish mindfulness on the body, we aren't necessarily saying at the beginning of that meditation, the body is unattractive because it's composed of unappealing parts. Okay, we can see when we look at the 32 parts that these are kind of unappealing. We get the body has unappealing parts, but we don't get that it's unattractive. <laughs> Biko Bodhi really made this really clear. It was so funny. Many years ago, he said, think of someone you're attracted to. Okay, so he was talking about a guy who was, and he mentioned like a, like a Miss America or something. Whatever. Think of someone you're attracted to. You see them, they're attractive, right? Now, tear them apart and put all their parts all over the place. And it's like everything, everything about those parts is gross. The blood, the this, the that, the organs. The skin is like off, the eyeballs are tossed over there. It all looks, it's kind of unattractive. But as soon as you snap that back together, boom, they're attractive again. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, true. <laughs> That's how it works. So we have to kind of bust through this uh, kind of, um, one, of these, one of these distortions that we have. And we don't necessarily do this in that meditation by stating the syllogism to ourselves. We actually just look at the parts with strong mindfulness. And of course, we're we're steeped and marinated in the Buddhist worldview. And we naturally come to see that it's unattractive. Why? Because it's composed of all these unattractive things. And so this can be an inference that has a very strong effect on your mind. And it, it will affect how you relate with others it might even lead you out of cyclic existence, and you haven't necessarily stated yourself a syllogism. same thing with feelings, like the feeling consi- the syllogism, consider feelings they are dukkha unsatisfactory in nature because they are under the control of afflictions and karma so if you if you meditate on uh, for establishments' mindfulness and you meditate on feelings, you just start to see you know, you'll start to see this, that, wow, these are under the control of afflictions and karma. They're just like coming, going, coming, going, coming, going. It's like, it's just this crazy. And and the fact that they don't stay is really a drag when they're pleasant. And, you know, I mean, it's just, so this will come to you. It will lead you to that, that there's no purpose to cling to these things. They're just coming, going, coming, going. And like, they're just popping up. And yeah, and so not to be so, identified with them and so attached to them because they're just so transient. Like, the, you know, the thing with the bubbles of water, that's what they say, that the analogy is feelings are like water drops making these bubbles. And the, the bubble from a dr- drops of rain are so transient. And that's how our feelings are. If you watch them, they're just, they're hard. They don't, they don't stay. So why be so clinging to them? And that's what it goes on to. And then in the end of the chapter, she takes the same kind of idea and applies it to Lam Rim topics. So, Mark, your homework to end tonight, we're just gonna give people homework, is to think about one of these two questions from everything we studied tonight. What kind of reliable cognizers know the dukkha of cyclic existence? And think about the three kinds of dukkha and which kind of cognizers. And then think about this second question, these are from her book. When you reflect on the kindness of others, what kind of reliable cognizers are at play? Think about that. I think these are really, once once we've got some grasp on this, we can think about these things and then really bring them into our experience and see you know, how we're functioning. And then just to know that some other main topics in this chapter, we didn't cover a lot of things, but she kind of lists, uh, one section called Pasangaka's Unique View of Reliable Cognizers. It had six points. She didn't number them, but there's six points, and we talked about a few of those. And that's very interesting, because one focus of tonight was to kind of do this contrasting Dharmakirti and Chandrakirti, or satantrika and Pasangaka. And then another thing that's in the chapter is you know, explaining about syllogisms and the different parts of syllogisms, and also about uh, s- scriptural authority, how to you know, look at the three things that you have to look at to see if a scripture is reliable based on the kind of objects that it's describing, phenomena that it's describing. So there's a lot more in there. But I think that these, to me, these were the main points that made everything understandable. And then you can just go back to it from there. Okay, no time for questions. <laughs> Send your comments. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I had to sort that out because I was so confused when we went through this last time. 2018, lost. And it helped to read this footnotes, I have to say, to understand that Chandra Kirti was just in a milieu where these were what people were talking about and why it, they thought about it differently. Well, who knows? They have different ideas. Okay, so, um, Back to where we started, we need to figure out what to adopt and what to abandon. So let's take our merit of thinking about this topic and um, dedicate it for our full awakening so that we can actually step-by-step rely on our qualified teachers all the way to full awakening so that we can actually benefit beings and remove every being from every kind of suffering. So much going on in the world now so evident and various creatures, human, non-human, we need to really um, dedicate for full awakening so that we don't um, lose anything that we're putting into our mind stream. We, We need this to carry forward in a big way.